0: Hello and a warm welcome to another Action for Happiness podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Guy. And in today's episode, we're again going to do a throwback to a wonderful conversation that our director, Dr. Mark Williamson, had with the wonderful and long-time Action for Happiness friend, Ruby Wax. Ruby is very well known for a successful TV career, but what is less well known is her long-term struggle with depression that was so severe at times it resulted in her attending mental institutions. Now, through this, Ruby stumbled across the work of Mark Williams and Mindfulness and sent her on a journey of self-healing. So much so that Ruby went on to get a degree in Mindfulness at Oxford University and was able to transition what she'd learned about the brain and how we manage our thoughts and incorporate it in her own work to the point where she's now helping thousands of people worldwide through her books, shows and talks. In part two, we dig into Ruby's new book called And Now For The Good News. And if you stick around to the end, Ruby guides us through a brief mindful exercise. For the full video version of this audio podcast that includes the extra bonus questions asked by our listeners, you can visit youtube.com forward slash action for happiness. Link in the description where you can also find the full archive of awesome videos.
1: I had depression all my life, but I didn't know what it was called. And then I had the kind of tsunami of depressions about 12 years ago and ended up in an institution and I had to reinvent because I'd lost my career. You know, it was starting to show in my eyes, but people didn't, you know, I didn't even know what it was. I wasn't an expert in mindfulness, I just had the degree, but I thought I'm gonna shift people so that they get more and more curious as to what I'm talking about, you know, this brain working in neuroplasticity and how we can actually take over, you know, and become the driver, not the driven. My dream is to have, not a theater anymore, but maybe something like Starbucks where groups of people could meet and they could speak human to human to each other instead of this cocktail crap we have to live with.
0: Action for Happiness is a movement of people committed to building a happier, more caring society. Visit actionforhappiness.org to join thousands of others who are spending a bit more happiness in their homes, workplaces, schools, and local communities. And also watch talks from our inspiring speakers and check out our monthly groups and our 10-day online course don't forget to subscribe like and follow to keep up to date with all our content and find out more at actionforhappiness.org join the movement be the change
2: but i sort of wanted to start by winding back to the beginning or at least when many of us first came across you with your amazing career as a as a tv presenter and you know a huge amount that you did in the world of entertainment which you know from reading about your life and from learning about you and hearing you speak sort of came to some extent crashing down from your perspective around how that left you feeling and 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 indeed where that took you on your own mental health journey i'd love to maybe revisit that a little bit and perhaps if you could share a bit about how that was and where it left you.
1: You want me to have another trauma? <laughs> not not
2: specifically, but to no. perhaps recap a little bit.
1: Well, I was born in Evanston, Illinois. I was, just, yeah, <laughs> I uh, I came to the UK primarily. I've said this before to get away from my parents, who struggled so many years to get out of Europe. I struggled many years to get out of America back to Europe you know, if you're a refugee, you're a refugee. That's the way it is. So um I wanted to get away from them. So I came to the UK with no money and lived in a bedsit for about two years where it was not the pretty days of England. It was when everything was black and white. And if you wanted to take a shower, you had to kind of milk yourself with a piece of rubber hose. It wasn't a great. A lot of Americans came with me and they couldn't hack it, but I stayed. and uh, And then I Jump cut, jump cut, jump cut. I finally got into drama school in Glasgow because they really would, nobody wanted to be in Glasgow. Those They didn't even have electricity there. Now, it's, of course, it's really cool. And then after that, I worked so hard so I'd never have to be a waitress again in Evanston, Illinois, which is where I was heading. So I got myself into the Royal Shakespeare Company with no talent, but a lot of push. Um, they used to, people used to, on stage, they would go, I can't believe I'm on stage with you because I was so appalling and I had an American accent. <laughs> <laughs> I made myself popular and I wrote shows for myself. So, um, and then made Alan Rickman direct them. So that's how it started. And he said, you know, you should write the way you speak. And he trained me how to do comedy pretty much for the next 30 years. He said, really, you have to get off this stage because you're really a bad actress. A lot of people made that clear while I was on stage. The very famous actors would, uh, leave me little notes saying maybe I should consider a comedy. So, uh, anyway, I left the RSC. I got a job and ended up with, uh, Dawn and Jennifer and Tracy Ullman doing that. And then, uh, gradually I crawled my way into television, got my own show. That's a long story. And then at a certain point, um, you know, you're consumed with your own narcissism. You know, you. I can see the disease really clearly as you start looking around to see who's looking at you. And if they are looking at you, you get really pissed off. It's the weirdest thing, but, you know, it's an addiction. You get to call a restaurant and use your name and the door swing open. I mean, and eventually you think you're really that interesting, which you aren't. And um, at first I was just bringing in famous people to interview them. By the way, before I did Famous People, I had Louis Theroux's job where I did really great documentaries and met the most extraordinary people. I, you know, They made me a wizard in the Ku Klux Klan, which was the first for a Jew. And um, I went to snake uh, worshiping ceremonies in Alabama where to show God how much they loved, he loved him, they threw cobras at each other. And if God didn't love them, sometimes they were bitten. So a lot of them were either dead <laughs> or missing fingers, it was to prove their love for God. So I got to see remarkable things. And I went to Russia during Glasnost, and then they made me do celebrities. They didn't make me, they said, would you do celebrities this year? And I said, please let me get back to the Ku Klux Klan. And they said, "Uh uh-uh, we want you to do celebrities again. I'm not complaining, I know it's a great gig. It's just that, um, you know, eventually everybody, um, it's not as interesting as seeing the dark side of America, which has been my favorite topic for 25 years and then eventually i was in i was about 50 and that's when as a woman you you've got to sink into the sun sunset you've got to go and you know as you think well i look exactly the same but clearly a bell goes off or something and um and if you're really desperate you start to claw your way back and show up on islands where you have to eat your young or they do documentaries about your gallbladder operation but i had a nervous breakdown (laughs) Because I'd lost my mind. I mean, Donald Trump was one of my last interviews, and I thought, I can't hack this. I really can't hack it. It, it looks funny now. You know, he threw me off his plane at about 33,000 feet. That's a whole nice <laughs> Because he said the first thing he said was he wanted to be the next president of the United States when we started interviewing him, and I laughed. I thought he was making a joke. So he said, that's it, I want her out of here. And he landed the plane. He didn't, his pilot did. And they threw my camera crew and myself off in Arkansas and uh, left us there. So the whole show was looking, looking for, I won't go into it, you can Google it.
2: I, I have seen it and I'm, I'm you know, oh. it's, it seems particularly prescient what you're saying about the the drama of American life and the, the role of Trump, given current circumstances. But let's not go down that path. But interesting hearing you mention Louis. I heard you on his podcast recently and, and you sort of shared really openly that, that there was a sort of sense of trauma for you, both about how people like him came in and became the next generation of people doing things like that, but almost like that you... Well, I I know that you then went on to the next step, which was obviously talking really openly about your own mental health issues. How much of that do you think was there within you anyway, as opposed to perhaps triggered by that rather toxic environment you've been working in?
1: Well, I, you know, when my mother was young, they didn't know what mental illness was at all. So I had uh, 30 wonderful years with a woman who really had to be scraped off the ceiling and nobody mentioned that this might be mental illness, you know, had it had been discussed, I'd understand, but to, you know, for a kid to not have a clue, I assumed everybody's parents were like that. So she really wasn't, you know, so when I had first had mental illness, people thought it was a physical illness and I was always giving blood away, you know, to see what I had and they couldn't name it. So of course you, um, you think you've lost your mind. Uh, I never told anybody I had mental illness and I didn't even know it until my third Child, And then a doctor said, you know what you've got, you're clinically depressed. And it was such a relief because once you can name it, well, you know, it's mindfulness when you name it, it's not as if you're possessed by the devil, though that's how they treated people with mental illness mm. a couple of decades back, you would be burned at the stake. So things are looking up. Um, and I didn't want anybody to know, but then once, uh, Louis didn't send me to a, um, an institution, but a lot of things had accumulated at that point And I guess it hit a trigger. I had depression all my life, but I didn't know what it was called. And then I had the kind of tsunami of depressions about 12 years ago and ended up in an institution. And I had to reinvent because I'd lost my career. You know, it was starting to show in my eyes, but people didn't, you know, I didn't even know what it was where you start to have temper, you know, you'd you flare up in anger, the eyes would go dead, it would be impossible to move. I mean, before that I could sometimes say I had the flu and not be on television, but now it was, if you don't deal with it, it starts to accelerate and it starts to get deeper and longer. So the last time I had it about 13 years ago, I said, I've gotta, I've got to learn how to deal with this, because this is gonna ruin my life. And I've lost my job and my kids need feeding. <sighs> So I had to reinvent pretty
2: quickly. Yeah, but you did that in a way that was in the public domain, which is incredibly brave. And I, I mean, I, one thing I wanted to say on behalf of all the audience tonight is I think you've been an absolute pioneer in talking really openly about mental illness in a way that has genuinely shifted the dialogue. I mean, if I look at the news today, okay, we're dealing with COVID right now. I've heard mental health mentioned four times in mainstream media, different contexts today. That wasn't happening five, 10 years ago. You've been part of this revolution, I think, of making this part of our daily conversation and and all credit to you. But um, that must've been a quite strange experience building like live shows where you would start to open up about this. I remember going to one of the early ones and being blown away both by what you shared but also the kind of the feeling it created in the audience. How was that?
1: Well, I almost didn't have a choice. It wasn't like a brave thing I was gonna do. I had no job at the BBC except, you know, doing shows of such um, humiliation and um, other people would think it's a wonderful thing to go. Well, you know, the kind of shows I, I can't even, my last gig I think was um, cutting the ribbon at Costa um, in terminal three, you know, you're, you're holding on to
2: sh- <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> open a coffee shop. It can get bad. It can get desperate. And I really wanted to move away before it leave the party before it leaves you. So, um, So uh, what happened was around the time when I was, I can't remember if I had the illness or it was after the illness, I had already started to go to learn how to be a psychotherapist because I thought, you know, heal thyself. That's what what I first did. I I wasn't going to be a therapist, but I just wanted to meet people that were not obsessed with where their career is going up and down. And I had a whole new crowd. I mean, I still have my old friends, but you know, we talk about Jung and we talk about, you know, Carl Rogers and we talk about, and it was just thrilling to not hear that noise of narcissism, but I knew I wasn't gonna be a therapist. And around that time, I, I probably said this a thousand times cause I did use this in my show, but it was true is that Comic Relief used a picture of me without asking my permission to raise money for one of their mental health charities. So they, it was a photo of me looking with a red nose, not my most attractive. And it said on it, one in four people have mental illness. <laughs> and then it said, one in five people have dandruff. I have both. And <laughs> I, I first knew about it when I was going down the tube station and thought, oh, there's somebody familiar. And gradually it wasn't just one, it kept going all the way down the tube station where it was a picture of me. You can Google it, it exists. Yeah. And I thought I'm screwed. I'm totally screwed up. My breath, I, you know, I tried to throw myself in front of the first one, but they kept going and people going, that's you. You're the one who's mentally ill.
2: So you sort of unintentionally became the poster girl for mental health conversations. Yeah. The
1: only thing I thought to do, and I thought this was clever is I thought I'm, now I have to write a show and I'm going to pretend that's my publicity poster. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's the brain of a refugee, like how to get out of Nazi Germany, same mentality. So um, so not the same, but you know what I mean? You have to think on your feet because I was mm. so of getting busted for having mental illness because A, it's humiliating. B, I never told anybody. And C, you know, the stigma was, it, well, since witch burning, I think this was the next step down. You would really be shunned by people, I felt, if you told anybody. So I wrote a show, right? And I did it. Uh, I did the show, but I didn't want to do it in public because then people would really know I was mentally ill. So I did it in mental institutions. So I did my first show, Losing It, for two years in different mental institutions. There were uh, some, a few private, but mostly national health. And the payment was, the remuneration was, I could stay overnight because my happy place is being with my people. So they would let me stay over. I'd go in the smoking room after my show and meet you know, if you wanna do theater, you need to look no further than the smoking room of any institution. And they, well, the gush of imagination and human vulnerability and, you know, no bullshit straight to the heart stories and being able to feel the compassion, you know, it's a hit on effect. You're only there for the next person. Something happens and it's, it's to me, you know, that's, I'm not saying that's why I do frazzle cafes, but when you get people who talk from the heart, Okay, forever. there's something
2: really powerful about meaningful conversations and I, I felt it i came to when you when you did then take that show public i came to one and i felt that electric atmosphere in the audience but an observation i wanted to sort of ask you about really was we met not too long after that in person and you very kindly came and did one of our action for happiness events and i felt at the time in talking to you that you were being a, you know, a fantastically open uh, an entertaining character in the world of talking about, you know, mental health and really bringing it to life in an engaging way. But I felt that when we spoke personally, your narrative was, this is an issue, it's really bad, there's not much you can do about it, it's pretty effing awful, actually. And then I feel that as I watched your journey, you you, you seem to gain a sense of hope. And of course, later on, we're going to talk about this fantastic new book of yours, which is a very hopeful book. But I remember you saying, that I think you've met someone who I often get confused with, Mark Williams, one of the leading mindfulness experts as part of your journey when you've been really ill. So how did mindfulness begin to find its way into this, this journey? You know, I was, I,
1: I, part of mental illness is you can't really remember. I think if there's a God, he says, we're going to erase your memory. You know, it's like, it's, it's like when women are, you know, having their period, same thing, you can't remember. And suddenly it comes that time of the month and you want to hunt everybody down and then you go, Oh yeah, that's what it is. So in a way, you block out the horror of it. Uh, that's mm. that's um, maybe a blessing. So when I was um, still in the in the institution, Ed, my husband, used to pick me up and take me to um, mindfulness courses, right? That Michael Chestleton was running. Of course, you can't do mindfulness when you're that far gone, because you have no mind. But I had an instinct that was something really interesting. And I remember people looking at me when I came in, I was still wearing my pajamas with an overcoat trying to figure out because I thought when I, I don't want to be this ill ever again. I know there's no cure, but there must be a way rather than spending the last bit of my money on shrinks, which I'd seen for 30 years and and they're wonderful, but there's a point in your life where I thought I have to take over the wheel now. You know There must be some exercise, something I can do so that I can regulate this machine, not machine, but you know. At least I could spot it coming. The thing I couldn't stand about depression is you don't know it's there. Because I always say, you know, if your leg was broken you can see that, but if your brain is sick there's no other brain to see that something's wrong. So you're what's wrong with you. It's, I had to ask uh, somebody I was working with the first time I said, do I look crazy to you? And she said, yes. Mm. And I thought, oh, I better get to a place to help. So I left my house with a pajama bottom and a sock and ended up in a bedding office. The people that are the last to know are the ones who are suffering. And then gradually it dawned on me, but luckily I could pay for an institution, but Bupa runs out pretty quick. I could never go in again, you know, so, but I, I did see a lot of national health mental homes when I was touring and there's, and there are sensational ones. I don't know if that's there anymore, but the point is, um, don't know where the point was going well i
2: think i was kind of intrigued as to where mindfulness particularly started to become helpful in that really challenging situation you were in because of course what you then moved on to doing was to start to well you went to oxford university to study mindfulness and you brought it into your shows but where where did you first experience the benefits of it really
1: well when ed would take me to see michael um yeah and i did that let me just say also what he did this poor man was I'm just gonna go sideways a little bit. There was a show that they let me do. It wasn't a TV show anymore. They they were letting me do something called, I think Ruby's Room. It was online and it was um it, it was where somebody with a different pathology, let's say a schizophrenic, somebody with body dysmorphia, bipolar, would come to my house, read for real, every week. They'd knock on my front door, they'd come in. You'd see my cat, you'd see my kids, I'd give them tea, we would, and they I would have an interview with them. And these are my people. So I mean, there's there's people I'm still friends with to this day. Stunning. And then it would come up at the end what the symptoms were of, let's say, schizophrenia, and then what where to go. Now this should have been a TV show, but I was already replaced and gone, you know, like a kind of paper cup that's thrown away. So at least I was holding on and I did love doing that kind of show. They let me do it online called Headroom. It was Ruby's room. So my first guest was uh, somebody with depression and I'm in an institution. So Ed has to go get me, rather than say I have mental illness, he goes to get me. I put on shaking some lips, right? Everybody in the institution goes, this is so brave, which is no mean review from other people who are. (laughs) I go home, I'm slightly shaking. I'm sitting in front of a person in my house with depression. I have sweat running down me. My lips have that dryness that you get when you're really ill. And the camera crew don't know that I'm sicker than the person who I'm interviewing. And you can see them looking at me thinking, wait a minute, you're in way more trouble than I am. (laughs) Mm. But I didn't want to lose my job. So then, when it was over, I went, "Thanks very much," pretending I was somebody called Ruby because your personality is gone. And Ed put me back in the car and took me back to the. Um, the wow! Institute.
2: I mean, thank you as always for sharing this because it's really powerful to see how much this sort of is. I mean, you know, you have dealt with so much in such a lot of different in such a public way, but then in yeah. fact, I, what I've seen you do is bring some vitally important topics into the mainstream to really help people. So you obviously uh, had decided you wanted to pursue a bit of an understanding, as I, as I see it, of how the brain works. And you <laughs> got into Oxford University to study a master's in mindfulness. Fantastic. Yeah. And then and, uh, I, because, I think it's right I'm saying the- that you then built that into your show as part of the dissertation of your master's. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Well, well, I was just saying, when he didn't drive me home to interview schizophrenics or uh, depressives, he would also drive me to do mindfulness courses. By the eighth week, I think I was starting to wake up, you know, to come out of the... Um, I don't know, the ether and back into a mind. And I thought, wait a minute, this is really interesting. So I asked Michael, who created this? And he said, Mark Williams. So I said, well, where is he? Because I am a driven person, which is great for career, but really bad for mental health. Too much of a turbo, it'll, well, that's another story. So I I hunted down Mark. I found him in Oxford. I don't remember because I was still ill, but Mark, I think, um, said, I'll teach you mindfulness. I mean, he's such a, and I think he, I, I I was home and I couldn't come out of my closet because I was so um, terrified. I think I may have the, Mark came into the closet and did a class with me. And at the end, I said, I've got to learn what goes on in the brain. Mark, how can I find that out? And he said, oh, you'd have to get your master's at Oxford. And then he didn't hear from me again until I gathered every piece of evidence that I had been in, a, in school and here were my grades. And then, um, and then I did an interview like I've never done an interview before. <laughs> and then Mark called me while I was doing one of my shows and said, you got into Oxford and that, yeah, there was nice. moments of bliss.
2: And, and, I, that- and, I, and I was at your, one of your shows when you had, was I guess were towards the end of that master, and you were actually sharing with the public in a, in a really engaging, funny way, but actually secretly getting them to meditate. How, I mean, that must have been quite a, a shift for you in the style of your shows where you became more of a sort of, almost like a, a well-being teacher, albeit through your own unique style. How, how, how? What was the response to that like?
1: Well, by then I thought I really can't, sh- I can't shallow out anymore. You know, if you, if you go deep enough, the thing is with mindfulness, you can't get back, you know, you can't go back. You can't drift into, into lightweightness anymore. That's what you sacrifice. So when I did my show for my master's, I, there wasn't a lot of comedy. I just explained how the brain worked and then I, I did, you know, my practical where you teach mindfulness and then there's an inquiry. And then I used some of that stuff and bumped it up and turned it into a show. But um, I, my, my policy was make people laugh. You know, I mean, I write for app fab. I know how to turn a line, make them laugh for like 40 minutes. And then you can start bringing in their mouths are open. Then you can put anything in them. I think you have to deserve to be listened to, you know, mm-hmm. unless you're a and then I'm just like this, but I'm not, you know, I am i wasn't an expert in mindfulness. I just had the degree, but I thought I'm gonna shift people so that they get more and more curious as to what I'm talking about, you know, this brain working in neuroplasticity and how we can actually take over, you know, and become the driver, not the driven. I And I wasn't talking about mindfulness. I would go off and talk about my mother. I would talk about the animal, you know, I, it was a stream of consciousness, but gradually you could feel the audience going, well, what are you talking about? And I would sort of say, well, do you want to know? And then you'd sort of hear them go, okay. So it almost looked like by accident, I said, all right, well, I will. All right, so everybody sit down (laughs) and then come away from the chair. And I think that first show ended with mindfulness.
0: You're listening to the Action for Happiness podcast. In the second half, we dig into Ruby's new book called, and now for the good news. And if you stick around to the end, Ruby graciously guides us through a brief mindfulness exercise.
2: Uh, And now for the good news. I I must admit, when we first met, I wouldn't have imagined that you would have been writing a book about the good news. So where has this new hopeful Ruby emerged from? And what's the kind of main message you're trying to get across with this great book?
1: Well, first of all, I have to blame the monk. You know, I wrote How to Be Human with a Monk and a Neuroscience. And Tupton's been living in my house uh, since I met him. Except now he has COVID. He's had it since March. Um, so he's had to move in. I haven't seen him for a year, but you know he's the joy of my life. And uh, he kept, you know, he would always talk about compassion, because not only writing the book, I toured doing shows with the monk and the neuroscientist. Well, that was the happiest time of my life. And Tufton would go on about compassion, which would make me wince in a corner. I just and and the neuroscientist Ash, we would also get kind of like thinking there are these greeting cards with little you know doggies going I woof you, you know, just cringe-making. And I used to tell Mark Williams, too, that compassion bit. I know it's implicit in it, but to discuss it. And gradually, I realized when I got to writing, and now for the good news, is yes, we are born in a compassionate state, because that's how mothers grow our emotions for us. If we weren't connected, and it wasn't through the heart, then we're psychopaths. So um, I got it. I said, maybe I'm wrong about the last book, you know, uh, that... um, reptilian state doesn't rule but how do you claw your way back to this feeling secure enough to open the heart because boy you have to feel safe because we you know and i particularly found it interesting because my dad was a businessman and he said you know kind of kill before they kill you you know uh, that american he was an immigrant so those were the real killers you know screw the guy before he you know and um and then finding out that survival of the fittest which i assume meant the same thing my dad meant. That's not what Darwin meant at all. He meant the 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 survivor, the fittest, is the guy that cooperates the most. That's what he meant. You know, those are the ones that pass their genes. The guy who's the most liked, and it was um, Herbert Spencer, and all some industrialists who changed it to sort of imply that you know it's the more aggressive male, the you know the alpha is the leader, and the poor deserve to get nothing. So interesting, now suddenly I started to see, wait a minute, this is all a myth that we have to be these tough guys. And then as my, I did research for my book, I went around the globe looking for the, where the green shoots are in business. So I worked for Patagonia, the sportswear company where it's called Conscious Capitalism, At Unilever, Ben and Jerry's, You know, they're doing business in a whole new way or they're trying and people roll their eyes and go, yeah, but, and I wanna go, you wanna yeah, but for the rest of your life or you wanna really know what's out there. And I went to schools that would break your heart because of how they're teaching kids emotional intelligence. I mean, and and PS, if you're worried about your kids' grades, there's one called REACH2, it's in the UK. They went from something like 17% below, you know, what the standard was. And now they're at 82% above what the Ofsted standard is. Because when kids' brains, and you know this, can think clearer and they're not so traumatized and they can read their emotions, so these kids, and you could see they come from, there's a school called Reach 2, there's about 60 of them. They're in, in from traumatized homes. They're in, in the worst neighborhoods. And you could see that these kids might be tomorrow's criminals, but they're learning to say, um, uh, speak from the heart a little bit. So they have to do like the train of love in the morning to say what they appreciate about the next one. And then they learn to use a breathing ball when they start to realize they're going into the red zone. You know, they can read where their emotions are so they know to take a break. And you can see that these teachers are training them to lower their cortisol, right? And to understand that they are just as good as everybody else. So they're taught there is no such thing as a stupid question. And if your question is really unbelievable, but way off the chart, you get the A. And there's a zen den that the parents built for these kids and the parents are pretty much unemployed and that the last day they all got together 600 sang to me um a song it's called a million miles which i can't stand but i wept because these kids their hearts are open and i thought i'm gonna i can't and i don't cry because i'm on antidepressants but it was really touching
2: so I, I think got- you're right. You're right to highlight this because the kind of impact of both mindfulness and emotional intelligence in at an early stage in life is so transformative. And I think it's brilliant that you're bringing that to life at a time when, of course, our young people are under a huge amount of sort of stress and pressure, much of which is perhaps unnecessary and, and unhelpful to their lifelong sort of learning. But I think you've also did some like changing the way you live. I'm th- am I yeah. right that you went and sort of embraced an intentional community up at Fintorn? And it, yeah. it, tell it's me been- about that.
1: Well, I, in business, I did Patagonia and blah, you know, and watched the kind of uh, the ethics now coming into companies, which they are not the greenwashing where they put um, they give you a bonus if you don't flush the loo. I mean, some of these companies are really doing remarkable things. You know, they're trying, and uh, and there was another chap. There's a lot of chapters on te- the good guys in tech, the good guys in whatever, but in. Community. There's intentional communities coming up now, and one is in South London, where a they're trying to lower the footprint, but b they're learning to be living in community. And as I say, it doesn't have to be out in pet, you know, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. There are they're called intentional communities. There's ten thousand of them now around the world. Some of them I've, I've in favelas and in you know, African villages, and also in really sexy places in Ithaca, New York, where. It's just, when when ego's beautiful, it's beautiful. You know, they there is zero emissions. The homes are spectacular. This is the one in New York. Um, people are professors at Cornell and startups, but they learn that, you know, they they have each other's backs and they have to work for the community three hours. I wanted to go there, but then uh, the pandemic happened. So I moved to Findhorn, where I'm now going to get a little house. Um, it's been going 58 years. It started off, it was so hippie, but now... We're in a whole new ballpark. It turns out, you know, a nobody asks the shallow question. Um, B, there's real concern for. Okay, there are problems, but I worked on a, in the vegetable garden where all the food goes to a food bank, and um, with these extraordinary, extraordinary people, they just cut the crap. You know, these these well, the women especially, these great earth women. You know that some of them were, you know, professionals, some of them were teachers, whatever, and they've come to just appreciate working on the land and living this kind of simpler life where there is a sense of community you you know and they used to have dinners together now of course with COVID they couldn't and I started going swimming in the North Sea I mean please tell in November that wasn't thrilling but you're just inspired by people living a different way. And I really want to be part of that. And I'm sick of people at dinner parties or whatever, yipping on about the environment. I've always said, either do something or shut up, get off the pot, just do something. So I think, okay, so I'm going to get a little house there. It is zero emissions. So I don't have to discuss the problem anymore. I I fixed the problem myself. For me, I can't work for the rest of the world.
2: And this is, I think, really touching on you're touching on the sort of heart of the action for happiness mission, which is things change when we do something, they change for ourselves, but they also have an, an impact on others around us as well. Um, Ruby, I'll take up your kind offer of maybe leading us in a mindful moment before we take some questions from this lovely audience. How would okay. you like to do that?
1: Okay, I'll do it. So what I was talking about before, which was watching that gambling brain, which, even though we've been talking, I have been getting some incoming things like, you're not making sense anymore, Ruby. I think Mark isn't listening. I don't think anybody's listening to you, and you're gabbling. You know, I'm always getting the worst reviews known to man. So the mind is gabbling. But if we take our focus to a sense, we start to be able to lean back and watch the thoughts. So I'm just telling you what's going on in my mind. So let's, mm-hmm. if you're sitting in a chair, maybe just um, so your spine self supporting. Um, neck relaxed, so your head's just balanced on the top, not rigid, shoulders down. Of course, you can do mindfulness, walking, driving, eating, whatever, but we happen to be on Zoom, so that would become impractical. So bum on the chair, feet on the ground, and eyes open or shut, that's up to you, whatever you wanna do. But so we're gonna take our focus to a sense, so we'll just start with just bringing as much attention as you can to where both feet are making contact with the ground, if you can. So really feeling the weight of both feet, the footprints they make on the ground from the toes to the back, to the heels, side to side. Just that thin layer of skin that is between you and the ground, the floor. Okay then let that image go and now again take that focus and bring it to where you might be sensing your body touching the the chair or the sofa so you just feel your weight the outline of your body and the weight in between and then just letting that go just let it drift away and Now just take that beam of focus, that attention to sound. So all you're doing is listening. To the right, left, behind, above, in front, just listening. And then you'll notice that this has to happen. If it doesn't, something's not right. You'll notice that you're thinking about what you're listening to, or your mind's drifted off, or you've just drawn a blank. You like the sound, you don't, you don't know what's going on. Wherever your mind went, it's supposed to happen because humans think. So almost congratulate yourself. You noticed it. And now the difference with mindfulness is you noticed it, take the focus haven't done anything wrong. Just bring it, bring it back to listening again. And then the thoughts will come, they have to. You might not hear the thoughts or notice them, but you know you're not listening anymore. So you've gone off piste. That's fine, you noticed. So bring it back and it'll happen a hundred times. That's the whole thing. Listening. And noticing. And then bringing it back to listening. And then just for the last bit, let, let the sound go. Just take your focus off of it. And the same way you were letting sound come to you. You don't have to look for it. Just take take your focus to where you're breathing might be in your throat or your chest or your abdomen. Just go where the, where it's most vivid for you. And then just stay with that area. Just sensing the air going in and going out. Just really zoom in with all your attention where actually you feel the air going in and out. Noticing when the thought comes in. And just gently, just take your focus back to that breath. The more you think that's good, you've recognized it. Don't give yourself a hard time. You haven't done anything wrong. Just breathe. And maybe we'll end with five breaths where you count each breath, but without forcing it, let it breathe you. So you go in out one. If you lose your way, you go back to one. There's no contest. So to five. One, in out.
2: Okay. Thank you Ruby. Um, that was really great and very nice to reconnect with a bit of calm in an otherwise busy time. So It's brilliant. Ruby we're, we're out of time and on behalf of everyone who's been here we've had nearly seven thousand people join us live on this call which is amazing and I think it's probably the biggest audience we've had of one of these no. yet. So lots of people are really keen to hear from you and Really grateful because you, as always, have been incredibly honest and open, inspiring. And I think what, what's lovely about this whole journey that you've been on is that you've now gone to a place where you're not just thinking about dealing with your own trauma and sharing skills, but actually in this new book, you're talking about how we can all connect more with each other look for the good news. Finally, you wanted to leave us with a uh, thought. Oh, God, that's tough. Well, that
1: the book, you know, that I wrote, this one... <laughs> And now for the good news, there is good news growing out there. And I'm a cynic. But if you, um, you know, just to understand what people are trying to do now, and if we give them our attention rather than the news with yet another horror show, then these little seeds will grow us into a really great future. There are really interesting things happening in the world right now. We just have to notice it. And you read my book. Don't don't uh, you don't have to buy it. Just pick it up, read where they are and then go home, (laughs) go home and look it up and change your life. (laughs)
0: and remember if you would like to create a kinder and happier world please get involved with action for happiness you can join thousands of others who are spreading a bit more happiness in their homes workplaces schools and local communities our website has all the information you need about our local action for happiness groups and courses where you can find out about our monthly groups and our online 10-day course You can also be part of a supportive community sharing daily ideas and inspiration on our app. Search Action for Happiness on your app store. Join the movement, be the change.